Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be back in the pulpit at Christ Central. Um, I'm grateful to uh, Pastor Daniel in particular for his kind invitation. Uh, having said that, I feel it's important to observe that Daniel did assign me the first Sunday of spring break. He also assigned me the Sunday where we spring forward to daylight savings time and evidently managed to take out the heat as well. So feels a bit like a backhanded compliment to me. But in any event, um, delighted to be here. And the fun thing about preaching is I get to do as the pastors do. So let me say in the immortal words of Pastor Evan, if you have a Bible, meet me in Amos chapter 5. That's where we will be this morning. I will be reading Amos 5, verses 14 to 15, then verses 18 to 24. Uh, a slight typo in the bulletin, which is my fault, so I'll stop at verse 24. Uh, let me invite you to stand and honor the reading of Holy Scripture. And I invite you to listen now to the word of the Lord. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not life, light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Pastor Daniel likes to conclude the scripture reading with the words of Isaiah, the word of our God will stand forever. Let me substitute this morning a line from Amos chapter 8. The time is coming when there will be a famine in the land, not one of food or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will wander everywhere, running and seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Let today not be that day. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for sake of clearing the deck a bit, allow me to say a further word or two uh, about what uh, Timothy already pointed out, and that is that I'm an Old Testament professor, especially because it seems somewhat important in a sermon on Amos. Uh, first, yes, I admit, I am indeed an Old Testament professor by training and let the record show also by choice. It was, I have to tell people, it wasn't that somewhere along the way I failed a New Testament exam. You know, and they shuttled me off into the Old Testament. No, I really wanted to do it. And uh, like any career, being an Old Testament professor has some built-in job hazards. Uh, one of my job hazards is the wrath of God. I am constantly having to explain God's anger to people who find it not only pervasive in the Old Testament, but also just off-putting and, well, 
kind of a major downer. Uh, now, I have to admit, I myself don't feel that way. You know, being an Old Testament professor, I've grown comfortable with the wrath and judgment of God in the Bible. I've built up a tolerance to it, you might say. And uh, so I want to focus this sermon this morning on this issue, this important issue of God's wrath, because it is so important to Scripture, so important to theology, and so important to the season of Lent. Amos can help us at this point because he is, I think, our most articulate prophet of divine judgment. And it also seems abundantly clear that Amos could have been written late last week. I mean, we've seen that time and again, haven't we, in this Lenten sermon series on Amos called True Religion. We've seen repeatedly in this series how relevant these words from an 8th century BC prophet are for our own times and society. I mean, even if you've never read Amos before, you probably know the end of chapter 5 because Martin Luther King Jr. quoted verse 24 in his famous I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Contrary to popular belief, MLK didn't make up that phrase about justice rolling down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, but he was simply quoting another gifted preacher, Amos, who lived almost 3,000 years before him. That's how relevant, how contemporary Amos is. I mean, again, it could have been written late last week. But the relevance of Amos is not entirely something to be happy about. Uh, as we know from this sermon series, this highly relevant prophet is one of doom and gloom, of profound judgment and wrath. I mean, Amos is a tough book. There are a lot nicer texts to read than Amos, and there are other biblical personalities that we would probably like to have over for dinner before we invited Amos. I mean, right from the start of the book, as Daniel pointed out in his first sermon, the image Amos uses of God is that of a lion snarling from Jerusalem toward the northern kingdom of Israel, ready to pounce, ready to rip and kill. And when a lion attacks, and seizes prey, there isn't much hope for survival. As Amos himself puts it in chapter 3, verse 12, the only thing shepherds rescue from lions are fragments, two legs, or a piece of an ear. The rest is gone, devoured, dead. That, says Amos, is the only way the people of Israel can expect to be rescued. The only things that will survive of Israel will be a couple of broken pieces of furniture strewn about in the rubble. I mean, wow, right? I mean, that's brutal stuff. And yes, if we are honest, that really is kind of a real downer and kind of off-putting, or scratch the kind of, right? <laughs> and Amos is full of this sort of stuff, from the opening image of the lion through the chapters we've covered in prior weeks to the fifth chapter before us today. This fifth chapter opens with a funeral song sung over the house of Israel. That's how certain Israel's judgment and death are, Amos says. Go ahead, start the dirge. Play the funeral march. Carry the casket. It's over. If a city had a thousand people in it, Amos says, only a hundred will be left. Or if a village of a hundred, only ten will survive. 
God's wrath deems a 90% loss rate perfectly acceptable. And Amos is just getting warmed up because in the very next chapter, he says that if 10 people survive in a house, not a single one is going to make it. You know, why? What could possibly explain this divine judgment that is so thoroughgoing, so unremitting, so devastating that to even read it or talk about it makes us shift uncomfortably in our chairs? Well, the book, we know, is full of answers to that question. And here is where Amos is not only an uncomfortable book, but an altogether crucial book to read because it expounds and explains the wrath of God. The wrath of God, God's judgment, is important to think about because it is, it is here in the Bible and is everywhere throughout the Bible. It doesn't live only in Amos or, or the prophets or only in the Old Testament, but it's found also in the New Testament, in the fiery preaching of John the Baptist and in the equally uncomfortable preaching of his younger cousin, Jesus. Among other things Jesus said, you might recall how he condemned the three cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, comparing them to that archetypally awful town called Sodom. Sodom, Jesus says, would have repented if it had witnessed his works, but not these three cities. And so it'd be far worse for them than it was for Sodom, which was destroyed by divine sulfur and fire, according to Genesis. Jesus' older cousin, Johnny, that's what they called him, was equally harsh when he saw the most religiously observant people around in those days, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, coming to him for baptism. Well, how did you all know how to flee from God's wrath, he asked them. You're nothing but children of snakes. And don't even think to recite some sort of spiritual lineage to me, he said. God could turn that rock over there into a son or daughter of Abraham. Jesus followed his older cousin's suit by devoting a lengthy list of judgments against the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Here's just one brutal selection from that chapter. You are like whitewashed tombs, Jesus says. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead bones and all sorts of filth. You look righteous, but inside you're full of pretense and rebellion. You are children of the people who murdered the prophets. You are children of snakes. How will you be able to escape the judgment of hell? Wow. Pretty brutal from John and Jesus. And all of that brings us back to Amos 5. The passage we read begins with asking why God's people desire the day of the Lord so eagerly. The day of the Lord is a common phrase, especially in the prophets. And it seems that the default understanding of the Lord's day back then was that it referred to a time when God would come and set things straight, rescue God's people, defeat God's enemies, make all things good and right and new. We could think of it on analogy with the second coming of Christ, I suppose. But Amos takes that expectation and turns it entirely on its head. Uh, Yeah, actually, you don't want that day to come, Amos says. 
Because it isn't a day of deliverance for you at all, but actually one of judgment. It's like escaping one apex predator only to encounter another one. Or, or like thinking you found safety inside a house only to get bit by a copperhead in there. The day of the Lord isn't something to long for, but to fear. Because it turns out that the enemy God is coming for is you. I mean, again, what brutal stuff. I mean, Amos is having a really bad day. John the Baptist too. (laughs) Jesus too, for that matter. But it's very important that we think hard about these hard words, that we really reckon with these words because these are the Lord's words in both Testaments, in the New Testament and in Amos 5. Our passage isn't from some obscure, probably disturbed and smelly 8th century shepherd-turned-prophet named Amos who's cranky and mean-spirited. The Lord God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, lies behind these words. And so again, and not for the last time, why? Why these words? What gives? Well, true religion is what gives, or rather the lack of true religion. Without true religion, religion is just, well, well, it's nothing, nothing God likes anyway. Look at verse 21, which is emphatic. I hate, God says, I despise your feasts. I take no pleasure in your solemn assemblies. I mean, consider that verse for a moment. In that one verse, God is rejecting all of Israel's worship, even when it is done well, performed excellently, and carefully. All of God's sense perceptions, this verse says, are closed down to that worship. God won't look on the sacrifices, won't accept the offerings. God won't listen to the songs, no matter how beautiful or how catchy. Every nook and cranny of Israel's worship, that system that kept them in good standing with God, that praised the Lord, that atoned for sin, all of that, every single bit of it is denied here in this verse, deemed worthless and worse. God cares for none of it. In fact, God hates it, utterly despises it. Why? What gives? Well, verse 24 is what gives. Let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice and righteousness is what gives, and that is what matters. That's all that matters. That is true religion, according to Amos. Without justice and righteousness, religion is nothing more than trappings, even if it's quite excellent, even if it's quite sincere. But what Amos wants, what the God of Amos wants, is not worship on Sunday morning. God wants worship every single day of the week. Let me say that again, because it's important. 
God doesn't want worship on Sunday morning. God wants worship every single day of the week. And God wants weekday and weekend worship of a very specific sort. It doesn't count if it doesn't include justice and righteousness. Those two terms are crucial to understanding the prophets. They appear all over the place and are often twinned as they are here in Amos 5. They go together, and together these two small words somehow capture the entire range of prophetic concern. Justice, which is in and for society writ large, and righteousness, which includes the most personal of matters and the things that happen behind closed doors. In the words of the great 20th century rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Old Testament notion of justice, in Hebrew, mishpat, that notion is what is correct, exactly right, precisely enough. The, the notion of righteousness, Hebrew, tzedakah, is yet still more, beyond what is right, more than enough, more even than justice alone. If you want to understand God's wrath in the Bible, I can't recommend Heschel's book on the prophets more strongly. I even brought my own copy as a visual aid. It is a classic book. It's achieved classic status from the 20th century, among 20th century writings, and he, he wrote it when he was only 26 years old. In this book, Heschel points out that there's a huge difference between talking about a God of wrath on the one hand and saying that God has wrath on the other hand. The first understands God is fundamentally, essentially angry, perhaps all the time, and apparently for no good reason, lashing out randomly in fits of inexplicable violence. But as Heschel points out, the Bible never speaks of God as being essentially ontologically angry. Instead, the Bible everywhere and always speaks of God having anger. Well, having anger about what? Well, about very specific things, but ultimately two, injustice and sin. The lack of justice, that is, the lack of righteousness, the absence of those two twin words, mishpat and tzedakah, and the lack of those two words together in equal measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That is what God is mad about in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New, according to Amos, John the Baptist, Jesus, and all the rest. God is angry about injustice and sin. But if and when those things are taken care of, rectified, well then, so also is God's anger taken care of. It dissipates. It disappears. It's transformed. God is no longer, therefore, angry. God no longer has wrath, but is instead pleased, is happy, takes joy in humans and their obedience. So maybe the problem is our appreciation of God's wrath. And maybe the specific problem is that we lack a true sense of the sheer monstrosity of injustice and sin. 
Our sense of injustice pales in comparison to God's, according to Heschel. The exploitation of the poor is a misdemeanor to us, he writes, but to God it is a disaster. Our reaction is slight disapproval, but God's reaction is something that no human language can even begin to convey. I think, to be honest, you know, sometimes we barely even disapprove. To be honest, it seems that we have become indifferent to injustice and sin in the world and in ourselves. But indifference to evil may be even more insidious than evil itself, according to Rabbi Heschel. And to fix that is what the wrath of God is for. That is what it does. This, Heschel says in one of his most memorable lines in the book, this is one of the meanings of the wrath of God, the end of indifference. That's what God's anger means, the end of indifference. If we're ever tempted to think in Amos or anywhere else in Scripture for that matter that God is just having a bad day and is slightly a bit too cranky as a result, we need to stop and ask ourselves, is God is being petty and cruel when God's anger is activated and motivated by nothing less than the exploitation of the poor, the violation of human rights, and the oppression of those without means and substance in the world? That's hardly petty. And hardly cruel. True religion, according to James, the kind of religion that's pure and faultless before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from contaminating us. Mishpat and Sedekah. Let me add two further thoughts about this often brutal wrath of God. The first seems counterintuitive. It's this, that God's often brutal wrath is actually therapeutic. The secret of God's anger, Heschel writes, is God's care. For all its intensity, the brutality of divine judgment can be averted by prayer. The call to anger is a call to cancel anger. God isn't angry all the time, after all, but only sometimes. And at certain things, certain terrible things that live in our society and live in our souls. But if we repent and change those things, God's anger and wrath, God's righteous and just judgment are averted. They dissipate. They disappear. They're transformed. That's why Amos 5.14 reads like it does. Seek good, it says, and not evil that you may live, and so that the Lord will be with you as you have said. Amos, our most articulate prophet of judgment, so thoroughgoing and unremitting in his pronouncement of God's wrath, is never beyond calling for change, for repentance. In fact, that's why he was a prophet in the first place. That's why God called him to be a prophet in the first place. We see this no less than three times in chapter 5 alone. Seek me and live, verse 4. Seek the Lord and live, verse 6. Seek God and not evil, verse 14. And it's also in verse 24 
with that little adversative word, but. But let justice roll down righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Just do that, Amos says. Just do that. And all the rest of the things, the beautiful music, the important sacrifices, and everything else will be good to go. It will all be right again if you but change, repent, seek God, seek the Lord, seek the good. Let justice and righteousness flow. Then, but only then, will we be able to say God is with us. And then, but only then, will it be a true statement and not wishful thinking. God's wrath is therapeutic. It's for our healing, for our healing and for the healing of the whole world. That's why Amos is perfect for Lent. As we ponder our mortality and as we repent of our wickedness and sin. The second thing to say about God's wrath appears equally counterintuitive, and that is that God's judgment is glorious. I mean, sure, it can be a downer. Sure, it's off-putting. Sure, it can be scary, scaring you straight, but it's also awe-inspiring and praiseworthy. At three different points in this book, Amos interrupts his doomsaying to erupt in doxology. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 is the second of these three doxologies. Biblical scholars aren't entirely sure what to do with these three passages because they seem strange and, and out of place. They celebrate the awesome power of God who's created everything. So what does that have to do with Amos's fire and brimstone preaching, they ask. Well, only everything, and in two specific ways. First, these doxologies show that the God who judges injustice and sin in both society and in soul is not to be trifled with. This isn't, you know, a well-meaning friend at work urging us to not cut a few corners or a polite preacher suggesting we take a slightly longer look in the mirror on Monday morning. No, this is nothing less than, none other than Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, who demands that life be marked by righteousness and justice, by what is exactly right, and then by far more than just what is exactly right. That fact simply must be the end of our indifference because this is God talking. And this God is not indifferent. These doxologies also show how the God who judges is the one who deserves praise. Not simply because of God's awesome power, but also, but also because of God's just judgment. God's own innate commitment to justice and righteousness, summon forth and deserve our praise. The Psalms make this connection all the time. Psalm 96, for example, the trees of the forest, it says, will sing for joy before the Lord because he's coming to judge the earth. I don't know about you, but I didn't even know trees could sing. 
And then Psalm 98 adds this, the waters will clap their hands at the presence of the Lord because he is coming to judge the earth. I didn't even know water had hands. And then the Psalter says that the human community, over and over again, the human community joins the non-human world in praising and celebrating God's justice and righteousness. It's all over the Psalms. But not just there. It's also in the Apostles' Creed we recite every Sunday. I believe is how it starts. And that phrase means that we confess, hope for, believe to be true, and pray to happen everything that follows that verb. And what follows that verb eventually is that we believe that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That coming judgment is no small part of what we believe, confess, hope for, and pray to happen. In the creed, we expect it. In the creed, we wish it to be true. In the creed, we want it. In the creed, we long for it. So, no, Amos isn't just a downer, cranky, trying to be offensive and off-putting. No, he's a prophet, fully in line with the other prophets and apostles, announcing through tears the imminent end of God's people if they, if we don't change. And Jesus felt the same way. After condemning the religious experts for the better part of a chapter, he cast his eyes over the entire city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he said, you who kill the prophets and execute those who were sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your people together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Someday, Amos warned, there would be a famine in which people couldn't hear, let alone heed the word of the Lord. Let today not be that day. Amen. Amen.